Well, good morning, everyone. It is wonderful to see you here today at the Vista. Uh, we've not met before. My name is Austin. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. If you're joining us for the first time, or just the first time in a really long time, maybe it's your first time at church ever, or at least in a really long time, we're so glad to have you here today. Uh, a lot of us remember how hard it is to go to church for the first time, and so we hope that you feel loved and welcomed and wanted, that you fit right in, and that you make yourself at home here today at the Vista. Now, today we are in the second week of a brand new series called Ant, and I would like to start off today by, by talking a little bit about something that's very, very important, but it doesn't receive near enough attention or coverage, especially in church circles, namely, gray wolves. I know, some of you have been waiting, when are we going to talk about the gray wolves? This is your day, gray wolf lobbyist. So, as I'm sure most all of you are aware, in 1926, two gray wolf pups were spotted and then killed by park rangers in Yellowstone. These two wolves were particularly important because they were the last two gray wolves in Yellowstone National Park. And so for the next 50 years, there were no gray wolves left in Yellowstone, which was obviously great for everybody and everything because, you know, gray wolves are, well, they're very mean, they're very scary. They have wolves where there are tourists around, so we got rid of all the gray wolves, they were gone. No more gray wolves in Yellowstone. But after just a few years, a number of problems began to emerge with a wolfless Yellowstone. First off, there were now way too many dadgummed elk. There were elk everywhere. Look at all these elk. Because without the wolves there to control and call the elk population, their numbers began to skyrocket. This meant rampant overgrazing and erosion. And as it turns out, this was very bad news for the beaver population. Because look at this poor little beaver. Um, all these elk, they were now eating all the willow, and the beavers needed the willow to eat during the winter in order to survive. It got so bad that by 2001, there was one beaver colony left in all of Yellowstone. And this was bad because beaver dams provide all sorts of ancillary benefits. They help slow erosion and create pools for the fish. And then don't even get me started on the coyotes. Okay? Yeah. Because without the wolves there to help control the coyote population, the coyote population skyrocketed. And coyotes, scientifically speaking, they suck, right? Oh, you know, coyotes are the worst. They're the absolute worst. And this huge increase in the coyote population meant a huge decrease in the fox population because coyotes eat foxes. I know, and everybody knows that foxes are greater than coyotes, right? Think about all the great roles foxes get in movies. You got Zootopia, Fantastic Mr. Fox. Uh, there was the Robin Hood. Remember the Robin Hood? My first crush was on Fox Made Miriam, right? Yeah, about, some of you know, you've been children of the 80s. She was your first crush. And think about the good roles coyotes get. There's only one. Wiley, the only coyote who ever got a role. Okay, so we all get this. By 1995, park officials realized they had made a very severe, uh, well-intentioned but severe mistake. And so they captured and reintroduced 41 gray wolves back into Yellowstone. Now, there are currently around 100 gray wolves, give or take, in Yellowstone. And the scientific consensus seems to be that Yellowstone is a much better and healthier place with both coyotes, with both wolves and elk, and it would be with either wolves or elk. And this is one specific instance of a phenomenon that you and I both know very well, and we experience it on a daily basis, namely tension in what we do with it. And so here's the thesis, thesis behind the series, which you try it on for size and see if it fits, see if it fits you, see if it fits your life. Right? All day, every day, no matter who you are, we find ourselves pulled in many different directions. 
all day, every day. There are all these tug of war. Some of them major, some of them are minor, right? All day, every day. So, for example, you know, do I, do I stay at work late to finish that report, set myself up for the promotion, or do I go, do I go home early so I can play with the kids a little bit before dinner? Do I, do, I, do I stand up for myself and tell them how much that hurt me, let them know what I really think about them, or do I just absorb the punch, keep it close to the chest, and keep the peace? Do I get up early and work out, or do I sleep in? That's a tough one. Um, or uh, do, do I keep saving like as much as possible for retirement to be as responsible as possible? Or do I have the best summer vacation possible? Any of you couples deal with that one? We get in a fight over that one every year in the Fisher household, mainly because I'm very cheap. All right, so we'll, we'll be talking about summer vacation. Hey, say where you want to go on the count of three, one, two, three. And I'm like, summer fun. Is that? <laughs> we can find a creek to hop in. It'll, it'll be great. My wife, meanwhile, is the exact opposite. Where do you want to go? One, two, three. Mars. Let's jump on one of Elon's rockets. It's right down the road. We can go to Mars. Intentions, by their nature, are kind of uncomfortable, aren't they? It's uncomfortable to have a tension in a muscle, in a relationship. And so it's very understandable that we're constantly tempted to get rid of the tension so that we can just go all in on this or all in on that so you don't have to constantly be pulled, tugged between this and that. And yet in the really rich ecosystem that is our world, that is our life, that is our faith, so many of those tensions are there for a reason. And you lose something really, really important, really vital, when you replace the and with the or. In my experience, most of the most immature and unhealthy people I know, and I would know because I frequently am one of them, (laughs) they are people who do not know how to live with tension. Because maturity requires tension. If you're going to be a mature, healthy person, you're going to need some tension in your life. Narrowing our field of focus down a little bit more, what we're doing in this series is we are talking about a few classic evergreen Christian tensions that we have to learn how to preserve instead of resolve, even though it's tempting to resolve them. Dave did a wonderful job last week talking to us about that almost most classic Christian tension between faith and works. And now this week we're going to continue by talking about this very important but difficult tension between inclusion and judgment. So if you have your Bibles, grab them. We'll start off in Luke 15. We'll be in two different places. Luke 15, we'll read verses 1 through 3 for a little bit of context, and then we'll jump into the story, which begins in verse 11. You'll probably recognize it. be up here on the screen for you as well. And uh, I'll be reading from the New American Standard Version today. It says, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man, Jesus, he receives sinners and he eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable saying, dot, 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 pick it up in verse 11. A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between his two boys. Not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and he went on a journey into a distant country and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. So he went, he hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. 
And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, you know what? How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. So I will get up and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. And he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and I want you to put it on him. You better put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. You bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this boy of mine was dead, but now he's come to life again. He was lost. But now he has been found. And they began to celebrate. Luke 15, 11 through 24. So this is one of the best known and most beloved stories in all the Bible. And I tend to be of the opinion that it is the single most important story that Jesus of Nazareth ever told. The context for the story is very important. Um, Jesus is growing in popularity at this particular point in his ministry. And this has led to a growing conflict with the Jewish religious leaders. And Jesus bothers the Jewish religious leaders for all sorts of reasons. The list is really quite long, but it's very clear the thing Jesus does that annoys them the most is that he is way, way, way too friendly with sinners. Because it is okay to be friends with ex-sinners, you know? Like people who used to be rowdy and, 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 and rough and had, you know, some wild times, but, but have since got it together and got their act, you know, all in a line, got their moral ducks in a row. It's okay to be friends with those people. It is not okay to be friends with sinners, people who haven't got their act together, who can't get their ducks in a row. It is not okay to be friends with them. And that is obvious. And yet, while that is obviously the case, Jesus keeps doing it, apparently because sinners really like to hang out with Jesus. As verse 1 says that sinners were drawn to Jesus and they like to listen to him. And this is probably worth lingering on for just a moment, isn't it? Sinners liked Jesus. They were drawn to him. I had some sort of magnetic pull when it came to sinners. They liked to listen to him, which you might find a little bit surprising if you're one of those really super holy people, you know who you are? I think that sinners are all these God-hating mudbloods who burn the Bible at their secret devil-worshiping ceremonies, you know? I know, but sinners like to hang out with Jesus. And so if sinners don't like to hang out with you, well, I don't know if I need to connect these dots for you, but, uh, <laughs> you know? I mean, this is why Vista, I hope I aspire, our, our aspiration is that Vista would always be a church full of sinners because if sinners love to hang out with Jesus, but sinners don't like to hang out around here, do I need to connect those dots for you? It means JC's not here, baby. I don't know where he is, but he's not here if there aren't sinners here. All right? And so that's pretty bad. Sinners like to be around Jesus. They were drawn to Jesus. There was a magnetism there, but it gets even worse. It gets even more scandalous because not only did sinners like Jesus, but Jesus liked sinners. Oh, Yes. Yeah, we're told here in uh, verse 2 that the very holy people, they are grumbling about this. And this 
idea of grumbling, it evokes the memory of the Exodus. Remember that story in the Israelites, how they grumbled in the wilderness? And the nature of their grumble is that Jesus receives sinners and he eats with them. What's interesting is that the Greek word dekamai means more or less to receive somebody, okay? To not turn them away. But that's actually not the Greek word that is used here. The Greek word that is used here in Matthew 15 is the word pros dekamai. Dekamai with the prefix pros in front of it, which has the more intimate meaning of to welcome somebody into fellowship. And so if dekamai means a willingness to sit down and like talk with somebody, not throw them away, it means I'll at least listen to you. Pros dekamai means that you receive somebody as a friend. And so not only does Jesus not avoid sinners, And not only does Jesus not merely tolerate sinners, Jesus welcomed sinners, present tense, as his friends. Even going so far as to eat with them, which was the ultimate sign of acceptance in the ancient world. Okay, Jesus wasn't just friends with ex-sinners, Jesus was friends with sinners. And the Pharisees are very unhappy about this, and so Jesus can tell they're grumbling, so he calls them over, and he tells them a story, three stories. Stories about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and then a lost son. So a man had two sons. This is a story we read. You've heard it before. One day, the younger son asked for his share of the inheritance prematurely. Uh, this is tacky nowadays, sons in the room. I do not recommend it. But it was social blasphemy in the ancient world. Because they were much more collectivist and less individualistic than we are in our thinking. And so your share of the inheritance wasn't just like your piece of the financial pie. But rather, it was you willing to take up your responsibility to care for the family and for the clan. Okay? And so, in receiving your inheritance, you didn't get just your piece of whatever money your parent had. You were saying, I am willing to take on my responsibilities to the family that are included and packaged in this money. And so, in asking for his share of the inheritance early, this younger son is not only telling his father that he cannot be bothered to wait for him to die, but also that he rejects his responsibility to the family, and to the clan. He's going to go spend it all on himself. And so this son has disrespected and humiliated his father with this request. And actually, according to Scripture, according to Deuteronomy 21, this father had the right to have his son stoned for this. Okay, this is Deuteronomy 21, verse 18 and 21. Now, if any man has a stubborn or rebellious son, all the men of his city shall stone him to death. Now, I have suggested this as a memory verse for Vista Kids. Thus far, Ross, our kids' pastor, is not. It's on a big poster uh, on the wall in our boys' room. It's our memory verse every night. If any man has a stubborn or rebellious son, I do love the Bible. And yet, against all common sense, this father, he grants his son's request, even though it made no sense. His son takes a share of the inheritance. He journeys out into a far country, squanders it on loose living, and then once he's lost everything, a famine hits. Isn't that always the way life works? <laughs> once he has lost everything, then the famine hits. He's got no resources, no one will give him anything, and so finally he, he finds this job feeding swine, feeding pigs, okay? A Jewish boy feeding pigs. Right, this, is, this is as low as you can go. This is the bottom of the barrel, and there as low as you can go. He, we're told he comes to his senses, comes up with a plan. He says, here's what I'm going to do, man. I'm going I'm to travel back to my village, back to my father's house. I'm going to apologize to my dad. I'm just going to ask him if he will receive me as a hired hand because even my father's hired hands have it better than I do here, right? You can imagine him practicing the speech like all the way on the journey back home, can't you? 
Father, I've, I've sinned against thee. No, it's too formal. Dad, I, no. Daddy, Papa, I have sinned against thou. Will you please say, he rehearses until he gets the speech just right. And so he nears the end of his long journey. He approaches his village, and then something very unexpected happens. His father sees him coming from a really long way away. That's what the text says. Because his father has been looking for him, anxiously scanning the horizon for his silhouette. And then his father does something even more unexpected. He races out to greet his returning son. And there are a few things that we need to understand to really feel this moment the way it's meant to be felt. Okay, so first off, first thing you have to understand is that ancient men in the Middle East, um, and they did not run anywhere ever for any reason, okay? Ancient men in the Middle East, they did not run anywhere for any reason, right? Because running was for boys, okay? Because men who had some status in the community, they always walked around in a slow, dignified manner, which means that this dude had not run anywhere in probably 40 years. Can you imagine how bad this guy pulled his hamstring? I just think about it and I get hurt. We used to have a Vista men's flag football tournament. We had to cancel it because all these 20-year-old guys were blowing out their ACLs and Achilles, literally. The only guys who liked it were our ortho surgeons. It was sponsored by Kev Caperton and Dan Stahl and Mike Brennan, Scott and White ortho. This is terrible. I can't even imagine how bad he pulled his hamstring. And then second, and on a related note, you got to understand that this old man, he's not like sitting around in Lululemon joggers, you know, like ready for a race to break out at any given moment. No, what's this old guy wearing? He's wearing a tunic. Have you ever tried to run in a tunic? It's probably been a while for most of you since you've run in a tunic. Ladies, you, how do you run in a tunic? You have to hike that thing up, get up so you got a little space, you know, knee clearance here, get those high knees, which means that in order to run, this guy has to bear his pasty white legs to the whole village, legs that have not seen the sun in 40 years. He probably blinded everybody in the village, running out there, pulling his hamstring. Everybody's gone blind as Ezekiel runs out of the village, blinding God and everybody. It's this unbelievably humiliating scene. It is ridiculous, which brings us to the third thing, which is that this father runs out to greet his son and humiliates himself in order to prevent his son from being humiliated. Because custom in the ancient Middle Eastern world dictated that if a Jewish boy squandered his inheritance among the Gentiles, and then he tried to come back home to his village, the entire community would go out and confront him and perform a ceremony called Kazaza. And in this Kazaza ceremony, the entire village would go out there, they would take a large pot, and they would shatter it in front of this returning boy as a sign that his relationship with the community had been shattered, and he was not welcome here anymore. You squander your inheritance among the Gentiles, then this is not home for you anymore, and no one in the community would receive you. So when this father sees his boy returning, He races out to greet him, to save him from the humiliation of the Kazaza ceremony. This father humiliates himself so that his boy won't have to get humiliated. And so the father runs out to the prodigal. You know, the prodigal apologizes and confesses his sins. And then the father forgives him and welcomes him back. Only that's not quite what happens, is it? 
oh, it's, it's not quite, it's what you think happens, but it's not because the father does not wait for his son to apologize and confess before receiving him as a son, but rather the father receives his boy back as his son before the prodigal even has a chance to get his perfectly rehearsed apology out of his mouth. I just love how the son finally, the son does finally get his like little apology. I was like, father, I've sinned against heaven. Please just receive me as one of your hired men. And his father just interrupts him. You notice that? And he's like, shut up. How long have you rehearsed that speech, man? Good Lord. Shut up. Somebody better get my boy a ring and a robe and some Miller's catering, a keg from Bold Republic because we're going to party all night long because my boy was lost. And now he's come back home. What do you mean not treat you like my boy? You're my boy. You're always going to be my boy. It is an unthinkably gracious and joyful story that gestures at the unthinkably gracious and joyful good news of the gospel wherein God our Father welcomes all of us prodigals back home. But what's really wild is that the good news of the gospel is actually even better than the good news in the story of the prodigal son. Because the good news of the gospel is not that God will welcome you back if you'll get up and come to your senses and come home and ask for forgiveness. That's not the good news of the gospel. No, the good news of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, God himself journeys out into that far country looking for you. And he finds you. And he brings you home to God, your father. Now, this is why Karl Barth, one of my favorite theologians, he always talked about the gospel as the story of the son of God who goes off into the far country to bring home all the lost sons and daughters of God to our father. And so that is the radical inclusion of the gospel. Not if you will come to your senses, God will forgive you, but that God in Christ goes out into the far country, finds you, and brings you home. And you cannot make too much of it. But, and here's the tension, we also have to find room for judgment. Right, so if you have your Bibles, we can go to one other place. 1 Corinthians 5, this is the Apostle Paul talking. Just a few verses to the right there in your Bible probably. He's right to the church at Corinth. He says, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and you've not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, I have already judged him who was so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you were assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. So if the Bible, cover to cover, tells a story about God finding a way to include us, which it does, the Bible also tells a story cover to cover about God judging us. Hang with me here. It starts in Genesis, okay? God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden because they've done wrong. It's at the very end of the Bible, Revelation. We just went through it not too long ago where every human being, living and dead, everybody will stand before that great white throne of judgment. It appears everywhere. And between Jesus, the friend of sinners, you know, the guy we just talked about, he did a lot of judging. Remember that time he had that whip, cleared everybody out of the temple? 
told a lot of very vicious stories about judgment. The parable of the dragnet, the sheep and the goats. Jesus was not a mild-mannered man. Compassionate, yes. Inclusive, yes. Mild-mannered, no. And the Apostle Paul is uh, very similar. And so in 1 Corinthians 5, I sure hope we don't get sucked away in a hurricane or something. Um, in 1 Corinthians 5, he gives us as short and succinct an explanation of judgment and why it is important that you will ever find. The occasion for Paul's judgment is apparently this very strange situation where we are told that a man has his father's wife, which is a VeggieTales way of saying, uh, well, this man and his stepmom have a very close relationship. We'll just leave it there. Very, very close. If you're sitting next to your stepmom this morning, I do apologize. This must be a little bit awkward. We'll move on. Um, Paul has seen a lot in his day. He has seen a lot, but you can tell this situation has him almost speechless. And so he's like, are you kidding me? Like, what? It, even the pagans know that this is immoral and gross. You shouldn't need a Bible verse. Like Ephesians 4.12 says, Thou shalt not sleep with it. No, you should just know. You should just know. Don't do it. And yet, not only are they doing it, tolerating it, but they're like perversely proud of their toleration. They're proud of how open-minded they are. Yeah, hey, God likes his stepmom. Cool, man. I mean, love is love, I guess. And so Paul lays down the hammer. And he says, look, even though I am not there in spirit, I, uh, in person, I will do what you should be willing to do, but you are not. And I will judge this guy. And I judge that he needs to be excluded from the community so that his flesh might be destroyed so that his spirit might be saved. In my experience, few things have a tendency to confuse us more than trying to sort out what the Bible has to say about judgment. Anybody else been confused by that? Because the Bible says a lot of different things about judgment. On the one hand, we're told that we should judge. You just read it right there. Paul's mad at them because they did not judge this guy. On the other hand, we're also told that, well, we shouldn't judge. Remember that one, Jesus? Sermon on the Mount, thou shalt not judge, lest you be judged. And so it can be very difficult to sort out. And so uh, here's what I think is a helpful kind of summary biblical rule of thumb when it comes to what Scripture says about judgment. Judgment motivated by condemnation is bad. There is never any place for it. Judgment motivated by discipline, redemptive discipline, however, is good. It's necessary. This is clear in what Paul says because while he judges this guy by kicking him out of the church, and that is what Paul is doing, Paul's motivation is redemptive discipline and not condemnation. It is not punishment for punishment's sake. To use a medical analogy, just like sometimes chemotherapy, okay? I know some of you have had chemotherapy. Some of you are having it right now. Is needed is this severe intervention for a severely unhealthy situation. That is all motivated though by what? By a desire for healing. Now, the writer of Hebrews puts this really well. This is Hebrews 12, seven through eight and verse 10. He says, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Parents, hope you listen to that. You need to discipline your children. But if you are without discipline, then you are illegitimate children and you are not sons, actually. God disciplines us for our good so that we might share in his holiness. Right, so to try to wrap all this together in like a, a tension-filled bow here, inclusion without judgment is cowardice. It is moral cowardice and it is not compassion. On the flip side, judgment without inclusion is condemnation. It's not courage. It's not you standing up for the truth. It is condemnation. That's what it is. And so inclusion in the fullest sense of the term 
includes judgment. Because while you and me need to be included, what we do, we don't just need to be included because, well, we're sinners who also need to be transformed. And yet notice, God doesn't judge us because God excludes us, right? What did Hebrews just say? God judges us because God includes us. God doesn't judge us because we're not his children. God judges us because we are his children. Judgment is a form of inclusion, right? And so in our very imperfect ways, this is what we aspire to as a church. Because as I said earlier, in our very imperfect ways, trust me, but this is what we aspire to. Vista is a church for and full of sinners. It's not a church for ex-sinners. There aren't any. It's not a church for people who think they're saints. If that's you, we're going to run you off at some point. We have too many sinners running around here. Just trust me. We will run you off. This is a church for people who understand that, y'all, our only hope in the whole world is the Son of God who travels out into the far country, finds us, and brings home all of us lost sons and daughters home to our Father. And yet on our journey back to the Father, through the Son, the Spirit guides us toward goodness, imperfectly, but in reality, the Spirit guides us toward goodness. How? Through each other as we humbly navigate this tension between inclusion and judgment. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for the gift of today. We do not deserve to be here. How could we? Every breath in and every breath out is a gracious gift from a gracious God. We come before you today and first and foremost, we confess that this is a room full of sinners, God. By the things we have done, by the things we should have done but have not for whatever reason, God, we're a room full of sinners. And we don't need to hide from that because you love sinners and sinners loved you. And so I pray, God, for whatever shame, whatever skepticism, whatever trauma people might have walked in the room with, that they would now know with sure and certain knowledge that Jesus Christ was and is and will always be a friend of sinners. God, also though, we confess that we are sinners who we need to be transformed. We need to be judged, disciplined. God, we do not need to be left to our own devices. And so we humbly submit to that What's hard about it, though, is that discipline usually comes in the form of other imperfect sinners. And so we pray that you would help all of us to humbly navigate this tension between inclusion and judgment. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.